This episode of the LARB Radio Hour is partially sponsored by Columbia University Press. From the founding editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books, Tom Lutz, comes a new book, Aimlessness, published by Columbia University Press. Order at cup.columbia.edu and save 20% with promotional code CUP20. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined today by LARB Editor-at-Large, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. This week, we have a double header for our show. We'll start with a conversation about a new exhibition at the California African American Museum with visual arts coordinator and program manager, Taylor Renee Aldridge. After that, we'll be exploring Bridgerton, the hit new Netflix series from Shondaland with professor and LARB contributor, Patricia Matthews. Yes, well, I'm excited to talk Bridgerton. It's very different from Enunciated Life. Yes, yes. Uh, Enunciated Life being the title of the forthcoming show from the California African-American Museum. Yes, and I think at some point during the conversation, you mentioned something about the sacred and the profane, and perhaps that's how we're splitting up the show. <laughs> in the beginning, we have the sacred with Enunciated Life and Taylor. Um, in the second, we have the profane, which is a sexy new Netflix TV show called Bridgerton. The guilty pleasure of Bridgerton, which I know that exactly. Medea and I had been texting back and forth as we were both watching the show. And so it was just a real pleasure to kind of bring some of that like text conversation into the fold with our conversation with Professor Patricia Matthews. It was fun. The one thing we didn't discuss was how gay the show was or wasn't. <gasps> exactly. Um, That's right. That was a big part of, well, you know, you win some, you lose some. And also how... <laughs> yeah. And also how none of the, um, and this was when I was watching the first couple of episodes with um, some gay friends of ours, they were saying, wait, are any of these men believable as straight? They were, like in, in part of it, they were like, well, aren't all the men gay in this show? That's actually not a bad point. Maybe something to think about in the future for our viewers and listeners. Exactly. But for now, we'll just have them follow along with our conversation as it is. Yes. We are pleased to have Taylor Renee Aldridge on the line with us today. Taylor is the visual arts curator and program manager for the California African American Museum. And she joins us today to talk about Enunciated Life, a forthcoming exhibition that centers on a sort of phenomenology of surrender as experienced in Black spiritual practice. Inspired in part by critic and artist Ashan Crawley's work on Black Pentecostalism and the effects and aesthetics of the break, which we'll talk more about this in the show, but it's effectively a moment in which the subject pierces the veil between the divine and the mundane worlds. Enunciated Life explores how such experiences come to house themselves in the body as a sort of embodied vulnerability and openness that is at once life-saving resource and life-affirming resistance to a world structured by anti-Blackness. Thank you for joining us, Taylor. I'm so happy to be here with you all. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Taylor, I wanted to ask you how this show came together and how you got in touch with Ashan and his work. Yes, yes, absolutely. So Enunciated Life began as a personal inquiry well before I was hired at CAM. I was visiting Trinidad in 2018 for the New Waves Dance Conference. I was invited to go to an Arisha shrine on the eve of the Emancipation Day there. And while there, I saw people possessed, being possessed by spirits. And my body, while at the shrine, my body immediately guarded itself. And I couldn't quite figure out why. I was super surprised by my inability to make myself vulnerable to spirits and others in the space. I couldn't quite locate why my body just couldn't submit to the space. And so I grew up, I think largely my surprise came from the fact that I grew up in a Black church, a Baptist church in Detroit, and this idea of possession was so integral to the space. 
I was baptized at a relatively young age because something convinced me that I was entitled to spiritual possession. And I thought that the Christian faith was my calling. And so I think about these two experiences, being young and open and willing to be vulnerable during this moment when I was introduced to the church around the age of seven or eight, and then being an adult in a spiritual space and being resistant to the idea of surrendering to something I can't see. And so in um, 2018, 2019, I started reading Ashanti Crowley's Black Pentecostal Breath, where he offers up a comprehensive theory around the beauty and endurance of Black breath in spiritual spaces, among other things. And particularly, like within Black Pentecostalism, there is this engagement with possession that is very foundational to the ways in which people practice that faith, that denomination of faith. In the book, he talks about this beauty of Black breathing, and he refers to it as a Black pneuma, which is a Black life force, translates to a Black life force, a Black vitality. And in the wake of continued violence against Black life that is so visible, Crawley's theory resonated so deeply with me in that time that I was reading his work. And he talks a little bit about, he talks a lot about, actually, this capacious way of living, this enunciated life that Black Pentecostalism possesses, and this insistence to be vital, to have faith, and to persist with a sometimes acrobatic and beautiful breathing in Black spiritual sites is simply remarkable to me. During this time, again, I saw that artists were working, were sort of taking up this idea, this concept of Black pneuma, Black vitality in their work as well as sort of these themes around submission and what it means to surrender to something. And so I began developing this proposal idea, and it's been well-received by my colleagues at CAM and other organizations who have supported the show. And throughout its development, early on, I reached out to Ashan Crawley just via email and sent a cold email sort of fangirling about (laughs) his work and his mind, you know? And he has been super receptive and generous throughout this process. And in our engagement, I learned that he has this really sort of rigorous artistic practice as well that's budding up for him and how he sort of materializes his engagement with Black Pentecostalism as well as queerness, which is another thing that he talks about a lot in his recent works. I recently edited a piece that LARB published by Ashan about specifically that connection between the work that he was doing on Black Pentecostalism and kind of queerness, like how these two things that usually don't meet actually do meet for him in a number of ways, which for him was the kind of the aesthetic experience of what he calls the quote unquote Black queer yes as an affirmative. And, you know, in that essay and also in a number of the pieces in the exhibition in Enunciated Life, they reference what is called variously like the break. You know, we described it a little bit earlier, but as an absorptive, ecstatic, kind of vulnerable and transcendent experience within a variety of Black spiritual practices. We should say that this is Pentecostalism on the one hand, yes, the kind of speaking in tongues, but also the sense of spiritual possession that you're talking about in terms of your experience at the Orisha Shrine in Trinidad. And in my understanding, the experience of the break kind of unites the mundane and the sacred, you know, as well as other opposites like sound and silence, stillness and movement. So can you explain a little bit for our listeners what the break is and how the artists in Enunciated Life both absorb and kind of interact with it in their work? Sure. I love this question. You know, I think the break is... In the most simplest of terms, it's sort of this definition or the act of being possessed. Possessing spirits and allowing oneself to be possessed is the sort of alluring thing that just exists within a lot of Black spiritual spaces. And to me, it signifies the ultimate form of freedom, freedom in an embodiment, freedom in this sort of somatic experience that we're all navigating, to be able to make yourself so vulnerable that you can let an unforeseen thing use you as a vessel. And so when I talk about the break and when artists in this show talk about the ecstatic, the break, the sort of departure, it is a queer form to me, you know, Mm -hmm. and sometimes 
orgasmic and sometimes just a product of what it means to desire and achieve in that desire. And so particularly in um, Stephanie Jemison's work, Census Plenar, which is included in the show, I think she captures this more in this 30-minute video that she offers up, which includes no spoken word and instead relies on the movement and gestures of the subject, Susan Webb, who's featured throughout. And Miss Webb is an ordained minister, an author, and a practitioner of my ministry, which is sort of this recent, somewhat a phenomenon that has proliferated throughout Black churches more recently. This work, as well as others by Stephanie in the show, are really getting at how specifically communication could be made elastic. So there's this idea, I think, you know, in this video, Stephanie does a really great job of rendering the experience of the ecstatic and what it means to be possessed by something and engage with spirit. But I think, too, you know, and in the arc of Stephanie Jemison's work entirely, she is very interested in getting at how communication can be elastic or decoupled from writing and language altogether. And so... You know, two other works that Jemison offers up in the show entitled Same Time are inspired by the indecipherable writing of the late artist James Hampton. And she also uses the mime and dramatic movement in Census Plenar to show us how performance could perhaps elicit more meaning and more emotion than coherent words ever could. Let me just interrupt you for a second, because I've seen the video, but I'm not sure that our listeners would know what mime ministry is. So can you just explain a little bit about what she's doing in the performance? Sure, sure. And so the video is rendered in black and white. There's no spoken word throughout. It's a 30-minute performance. And essentially, black mime takes from the tradition of pantomime found Mm -hmm. in European cultural performance traditions. And it's also very similar to the early film work of, say, Oscar Micheaux, or just general American film throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. And so there's this this sort of exaggerated movement that's performed, oftentimes in the middle of the pulpit, just to sort of articulate the very dense word of biblical language for youth. I think it was initially created just to resonate with youth in the church first and foremost. And it's sort of evolved into this thing that is appreciated by all groups of the congregation, all groups of the church congregation. And so for me, I'm thinking about, I think, you know, the works of Stephanie Jemison, as well as Jatavia Gary, who was one of the first uh, video works that you see when you walk into the space. They sort of embody where the Black pneuma thrives in this sort of gestural, sometimes incoherent communication that happens through body, voice, and text. And so particularly to bring it back to Ashan, he writes in his book about glossolalia in the tongues chapter, as well as the coda of the book, and how it is a form of sort of speaking Blackness, which is a resistance to coherent thought and thus colonial capture, right? And so there's this fugitivity that's happening in the act of speaking in tongues or this sort of like incoherent performance that I I believe is happening in Black Pentecostal spaces. And additionally, Stephanie Jemison has written about this desire to locate a communication that does not pass through masters, colonial masters, namely. There is a utopia for Black folks in this capacity, which is what Jemison and Ashan are getting at in their works. And when I talk about the break in my essay, this is what I'm getting at, just how sweet freedom is in that refusal and in that vulnerability that incoherence provides. So I actually wanted to ask you about, you mentioned the sweetness, and I think one of the things that I'd like to hear you discuss is also potentially the emotional experience of this kind of practice, potentially of also looking at this art and kind of going, or potentially experiencing it vicariously aside from the sort of intellectual implications of the work, what do you feel is like the effective or affective experience of the work? And just how you describe it, not necessarily how everybody might feel it. Absolutely. I appreciate that question. I will say for me that I've felt most alive in Black church spaces. And as a queer person who has grown up in the Black church and has understood the sort of complicated structures that are set in place to sort of 
marginalize and condemn the way that I live my life sexually mm. and otherwise, I still find a refuge in that space. And I think particularly it is because not so much the Bible as a document or, you know, this sort of testament of time, but specifically the sort of cultural experience that is engendered within Black church spaces. I'm thinking about the hair that's being adorned. I'm thinking about the sweat that's profused. I'm thinking about the sequin that is adorned in the space and just like the somewhat gaudy and vibrant visual aesthetics and sonics that occupy that space. And it brings me, you know, I say often, like, if that could be a religion, that would be my religion. You know, sort of these aesthetics and these sonics that are born out of these spaces. And so I think to answer your question and thinking about how I experience it somatically, there is a pride there. There's a joy there. Mm -hmm. Every time that I'm, I go to church with my mother now, that's the only time that I go is if she is encouraging me and asking me to go <laughs> I'm visiting home. But when I get there, you know, it just, it feels like home, mm -hmm. you know, as complicated as it is and as sometimes violent as it is, it still feels like a place where I could, you know, fellowship and find freedom. So Taylor, as I'm listening to you speak about this, you know, it does occur to me that what is happening, and I, I'm just wondering your response to this, in those moments is this penetration, so to speak, or this rupture between worlds that we tend to hold as separate, right? So the mundane or the material, the physical human existence, and the divine. And it seems to me that queerness oftentimes, I'm thinking particularly of like a gay male tradition, celebrates the body as a material site for what in other places passes as religious ecstasy. So can you talk about that kind of interpenetration as a site of like both incredible fixation and possibility in the aesthetics of the break and the kind of spiritual practices that you're talking about? That is a hell of a question. Thank you for that, Eric. <laughs> I will try my best to answer it. Queerness is definitely a major theme in this show. And particularly, I'm thinking about the works of Sean Crawley, of course, who embodies this act or this practice of queerness as he approaches his faith in Black Pentecostalism, mm. knowing that he is marginalized as a queer body, but still insisting on finding joy within this complicated space. Your question reminded me of a recent conversation that I read with Ocean Braun about his sort of comments on queerness, not as deprivation as we're used to thinking about it, mm. but as this thing that encourages us to take alternative routes, right? To think about an otherwise possibility and to somewhat be errant and wayward. You know, I'm thinking about the work of, the recent work of Sadia Hartman in this way, right? And a lot of yes. the women that yeah. were chronicled in her book, how they their sexuality wasn't always queer necessarily, but the way that they moved about this complicated state in this punitive state, right? Mm -hmm. And decided to seek pleasure despite it. I think very similarly, this sort of, this act of possession that we explore within Black faith practices has that similar sort of longing and desire tied to it, that, that practice of sort of finding an alternative route in the wake of continued violence, in the wake of just this persistent thing that's constantly just undermining your survival and your vitality. I don't even yeah, know if no, that answers I, your question. I love it. I mean, I wish that we had more time to talk about this because I could talk about that stuff all day. It's amazing, um, right? But for now, can you just give us a sense of how will folks, you know, knowing that, of course, that CAM, the California African-American Museum, is still closed because of the pandemic, how will folks be able to kind of interact with and or see the Enunciated Life exhibit? Sure. You know, this has been the bittersweet thing about it all. I'm so proud of this exhibition. It's my first exhibition at the California African-American Museum but no one has been able to see it. So we were supposed to open in the fall of last year. And as history goes, LA COVID numbers continue to rise and increase. And so we've been working just to rev up our virtual offerings. We're continuing to do public talks via Zoom 
with the collaboration of my colleague, Alexandra Mitchell, and we're hoping to offer up a long form video of the show, which okay. will detail each of the objects in the exhibition and also just provide these overarching themes that we've discussed today and that exist throughout the work. And then I'm also working on a catalog at the moment, which I'm super excited about, which will be available this fall. And the show will most likely be extended. We're working on extensions right now. Okay. So hopefully it will be, we're expecting it to be extended until September. So fingers crossed for that. I really hope that the LA community can see this show soon. Okay, and we will then direct listeners to the website for the California African American Museum, which is caamuseum.org. Thanks so much for joining us, Taylor. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Eric. Thank you so much, Taylor. Thank you, Medea. We've been speaking with Taylor Renee Aldridge, visual arts curator and program manager for the California African American Museum. Now, we'll shift to a conversation with associate professor and LARB contributor, Patricia Matthew, about the hit Netflix show, Bridgerton. So we have Patricia A. Matthew with us today. Patricia is an associate professor of English at Montclair State University, where she teaches courses on British romanticism and the history of the novel. My future job if I hadn't dropped out of my PhD. Um, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Uh, That would have not have been my job, but if I'd got... Anyway, she is the editor of Written, Unwritten, Diversity and the Hidden Truths of Tenure, and is currently writing a book about gender, sugar, and British abolitionist literature. She lives in Brooklyn, New York, where we are both snowed in at the moment. And she recently wrote a piece for LARB on the new Shonda Rhimes show on Netflix. You might have heard of it. It's called Bridgerton. And she is joining us here to discuss uh, her piece uh, on LARB, which was called... You know what? I should have. Sorry, one second. Um, I have it pulled up. Um, and she's joining us he- here to discuss the piece, uh, which was called Shonda Land's Regency on Bridgerton. Um, and to talk about Bridgerton at large, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So, Patricia, let's just. I mean, I'm, both Day and I are so excited to talk to you about this because this is like one of those like real guilty pleasure shows that like also is like, as your piece brings out, it's an opportunity to think about a lot of things. It's about an opportunity to think about our relationship to historical fiction, our relationship to the traditions of the romance, uh, how race and sexuality encounters all of those things. Um, so, but let me just to kind of scene set a little bit um, with a question. Um, so Bridgerton, which is itself an ad- a Shondaland adaptation of Julia Quinn's novels, named also Bridgerton, uh, it styles itself after the romance plots of the British Regency literature, which is that period from roughly 1810 to 1820. And, and that, as far as I understand, is that time between the end of Mad King George III's reign and the ascension of his son, King George IV. So most of us are, are probably more familiar with the literature of this era through Jane Austen's novel, right? And, you know, some, almost all of which, except for one of them, I think is actually published during that decade. And, you know, of course, something like, I love, this is technically my husband's line, but I'll adapt it here, is that Pride and Prejudice, you know, published in 1813, is perhaps our most ready-to-hand example of both the Regency romance and kind of, if you think about it, the Ur model of almost every romantic dramedy that's been published or adapted in the two centuries since its publication. So all of that in front of us. I want to kind of open up by asking, can you explain why this is such a durably alluring period for us culturally and why we keep returning not just to Austin, but to kind of the Regency romance as a world of fabulous kind of romantic imagination? First of all, that's a great overview. I don't think I could do that as succinctly and as accurately as you've done, so. Okay, I'm gonna report that to my former yeah, part one committee. You, so. you. Um, and I should also clarify, I'm in Buffalo, um, so I'm not snowed in, it's just cold all the time. Um, so uh, yeah, I think that 
partly it's partly it's just the American fascination with the idea of the monarchy. This is the same okay. that has us waking up whenever there's a royal wedding, tuning in and paying attention to every detail. Um, and I think that the Regency is so recognizable because we're far enough away from early um, British history that I think of as not particularly elegant, clean, sparkling, or pretty. Um, I think it's the way that Austen writes her heroines. Mm -hmm. I, when I teach Austen, I'm always surprised, even in the 21st century, how many of my students uh, still relate, particularly the white women in my classes, still relate. Um, to Austin's heroines, particular Lizzie, particularly Lizzie Bennet, mm -hmm. um, regardless of how far we get away from ideas of marriage looking a particular way and courtship doing a particular thing, there always are a group of women in my classes who are there because they are fans. I think Austin just sort of reigns culturally, um, generally. Mm -hmm. I don't think she's ever waned in power. And she's been read... Um, just along the political continuum. So yeah. I think, that, so I think she's just malleable in that way. Okay. And, um, so, yeah. So I think that's, I think that's partly it. And I also just think there is, I always tease my students. I say, you know, if you end up in an Austin novel, say you, you know, you wake up and your job is to get married to the wealthiest <laughs> man you can find. And they always imagine themselves. Austin lets us imagine, I say us, um, ourselves, as part of that middling class. In other words, Austin's heroines are not aristocrats, mm -hmm. right? It's sort of almost the first, or one of the first sort of representations of class in the way that we recognize it in the 21st century, right? You're never gonna yeah. be born a maid, right? A house servant or housemaid in England and end up married to a duke. But you can be the daughter of a very wealthy merchant who finds herself married to the son of an earl. And then, you know, and that's, and that's actually historically accurate, right? That sort of class mobility doesn't happen all the way from the lower classes. It happens from the upper middle classes or that merchant classes, that merchant class. So that's, I think, partly why it appeals. It kind of looks like our class mobility through marriage. And I think if you played, you know, if you had tea parties when you were a kid, if you were a little girl and had tea parties, this is the tea party world. I mean, that's the aesthetic of it. Mm. So Patricia, what did you think about the way that Bridgerton handled Regency, Britain, and the romance? I joked uh, with a columnist at the Huffington Post that nobody read Julia Quinn's novels or watched Bridgerton because they were thinking about genre and history, right? Everyone's pretty. The guys are hot. It's erotic. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think that's, you know, it's, um, I don't know that it should be a guilty pleasure, but it is definitely about pleasure. So I, um, I don't think of it necessarily as a Regency romance in the way that I would think of novels of the period. I think that they form the foundation. I think that it's much more um, about trying to explore and think about issues that those novels gesture towards but don't think about explicitly. Mm. Um, I'm thinking particularly of Eloise's character, who I read later had a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft in her room. Um, so I don't think it tries to sort of be a Regency in the way that we think of Regency novels. I just think of the way that it uses history as a set piece um, means that it's aesthetically pleasing. And I think it allows a lot of straight women to have it both ways, where they get to marry the handsome, wealthy guy, but they also get to pretend that they're feisty and they're fighting a way to find their voice and they're finding their agency and they're confronting their controlling brothers and their, you know, their moms. So I think it's a fantasy on two levels. Um, obviously what I think it ignores, and I'm a little more sympathetic to how it handles race and the slave trade, um, partly because it's the first season. I think that that's, I think that showrunner and I, they had a lot to do. And I think their main goal was probably to get to a second season. So um, I've been thinking about not just what they didn't do, but how they might have, how they might do it differently. Yeah. Well, can you say a little bit about that? Because that is, I mean, if people haven't seen the show, it is, it's not, I don't know if there's a term for this actually. And maybe you did mention this in your essay. It's not race blind casting. Sorry. Yeah. Um, colorblind casting. Yeah. Oh, I is that the word for that? Yeah. I think I didn't use that term because I found it a little ableist, but I do mm -hmm. think multiculturally cast 
And yes. the thing I really hope to do, um, I should note that um, Van Dusen liked the Lara piece. He retweeted it. Phil Massiac nice. and I were very excited. Um, he was a great editor, by the way. He was so patient. Oh, Phil is never written about television before. So I kept sending him final drafts that had new stuff in it. But the thing I would love to ask the casting agents is how they arrived at the characters who they cast with Black actors, because mm. everyone in the Bridgerton novels is white. And the queen, who everyone was buzzing about, is not present. And that is actually, I think, pretty consistent. You don't see the monarchs in contemporary romance novels, and you don't see them in Regency-era novels either. So I think they did a very interesting thing. So they cast Queen Charlotte, um, who historically would have been seen. She, I think her family is, um, she's descended from the North African branch of a family out of, Portu out of Portugal. And mm -hmm. when you look at caricatures and paintings of her, it's very clear that she's not depicted as a um, sort of European white. Um, so they, so that makes sense. But Lady Danbury is black. She's white in the novel. Obviously Marina, who I really just am enamored with, who has a bit part in the fifth novel is we don't even know actually we don't want she's never described so i think it takes um and it adds in characters who are not in the novels i think as a way to sort of build a community a multicultural community around those key characters um lord hastings simon is not black in the novel and everything i think shifts for an audience who hasn't read the novel but who see a black character um that does interesting things to how we understand history, right? We know the wealth of the wealthy families and Bridgerton is based on the transatlantic slave trade. What does that mean when we have a black Duke whose parents are also black? So, um, so I think that, so that's, that's sort of the world that I think that, and I think it's a Shonda land, um, I don't want to call it an ideology because I don't want to make her the state, but, <laughs> but, she is, <laughs> but she has created a world, you know, I mean, she does create worlds. And I think that's part of the ethos of her world is that the multicultural communities, I don't agree with this ideal, but it's hers and we see it in Grey's Anatomy. We definitely see it in um, Scandal and in How to Get Away with Murder that, um, middle class and upper class, wealthier representations that include people of color sort of suggest progress in a way. Mm -hmm. Along those lines, Patricia, and I, I want to make sure that we get to Marina, who I think is a, a uniquely complicated character for a variety. I mean, so much is like radiating out of her in terms of like the things that you could talk about. Um, but, you know, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting about Bridgerton is that yeah, it doesn't do the, you know, and, and it's just the term that I'm used to using. So I, I totally understand your your ableist kind of concern about using it. But um, it doesn't kind of go for colorblind casting in the sense of like, it just is what it is. It has no, it makes no explanation for anything. But they do try to explain that effectively, uh, if I'm getting this right, that Queen Charlotte, this is early on in the show, I believe, Queen Charlotte... Um, becomes queen or ascends to the throne. And because Queen Charlotte is very, in, in Bridgerton is very obviously black, it allows for the bringing in of predominantly black and Asian um, folks into the aristocracy. I'm trying to think if there was, if is there a Latino character, a Latinx character? Not that I, not that's coming immediately to mind. And if there are, they don't speak. Right. So we will right. bracket for a second that problem. But I, I am interested on the one hand in that gambit. So what do you make of that to, to actually make an explanation for why these characters are there? And oddly, not necessarily to explain how they encounter all these other historical realities, such as sugar, which was the boon to the empire and how that relied on the backs of people that look like many of the aristocrats in the in the cast, right? Um, so that's the question on the one hand. On the other hand, I am interested because it's fascinating to me that there is so much investment in a work of avowed fantasy that it's like, that's the thing that a certain but not insignificant subset of the white viewing audience 
sees as like, well, I want fantasy, but not that fantasy. And so can you talk a little bit about, um, I guess this question is about the cultural politics of that kind of representation when it is historical fantasy, and yet in some ways we want to cling to history, certain people want to cling to history, and in other ways they definitely don't. Right. So um, so the, I decided not to write about Queen Charlotte in the essay because I didn't want to engage with that question. And A, I thought everybody was going to write. I could just see the 15 info pieces about was Queen Charlotte Black? Could she have done X, Y, and Z? Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, because of very carefully cured media intake, I didn't see a lot of what I know was there. Like, how could they be Black? What I did see a bit of was, could her hair look that way? Because she has that glorious Afro. There's a scene when she walks into a ball and she has a stunning Afro. I think that people understand whether they want to admit to it or not, that when you are writing about anything that happens in the 18th and 19th century, mm-hmm. that you have Black people in it, you have to confront how they got there. And that always leads back to the transatlantic slave trade. Mm-hmm. And it becomes very difficult to have your fantasy and to imagine yourself as part of that world if you understand that the other people in that are populating that world were the descendants of enslaved people or their livelihood relied on slavery. So I just think it just, it just messes up that entire fantasy. And I do imagine, and maybe, I mean, I'm not a sociologist and so I'm reaching, I wonder if it's that same sort of cultural uh, reality that people's lives at home are white people in particular are pretty homogeneous, right? Mm. They might work with a couple of people of color, but their social circle is white. They worship in white churches their children go to school if they can afford it, right? They with mostly white children. And so their world away from work and anything that requires their sort of critical thinking is white. So when they turn on TV and they want to see 18th century or, you know, 19th century England, they want it to be white because that's an escape from whatever world that they're in. Um, Especially, I wouldn't know, I'm not going to say especially in the United States because I was in England a couple of years ago doing research and, Anytime I mentioned that I was writing about abolition, people had strong opinions about it, usually angry ones. And I was writing about abolition. I was not even talking, you know, I said, that's how I would frame the project. We don't want to think about race. We want to think of slavery. Mm. And hilariously, we want to think of slavery in the past to the point that even when we're in the past, we don't want it there. Right, right, (laughs) right. If you think about that. So I I think that's it a lot. I think it forces people to confront a history that they don't want to pay attention to. Um, And I think for, I think if I remember your other question, the first part of the question about the characters in the novel, or maybe I just want to say this, I just remember watching, like rushing through it at first and sort of these are actually probably the only white people in all of time who don't see race. I think it's hilarious Mm -hmm. that nobody white in the series seems to know, like Daphne's going to wake up one day and be like, oh, you're black. You know, like that's going to have to happen at some point. It never, it, it, I mean, it literally never comes up with the white characters. The closest we get is Lady Featherington calling Marina a distant cousin. And I was leaning into that distant of like, does she mean from the West Indies distant or just the country? So I think- And also, sorry, and just to, to, to sign on to what you're saying here is that like, it is also some, if we were to take this as like history, right? A fundamental change has happened and no one seems to have acknowledged or be dealing with the difference. So right. the, it is this very complicated, or, or how do you think about this? This very complicated opportunity for expanding horizons, but then also like immediately flattening them. Well, and Queen Charlotte, and I, I do, I um, somebody from the show should call me. I have solved this for them in the second season. Um, <laughs> there are caricatures of Queen Charlotte that circulated in the late 1800s. She was opposed to sugar consumption because of abolitionist politics. So it's right there. So it's just right. Like it's just right there. It, and I, it could be a side comment. I believe, and maybe it's because I just have a lot of faith in Shonda Rhimes, um, and I think that there are certain sort of, there's a moral compass mm-hmm. in, in her shows. I think that Penelope Featherington is going to get in trouble for having um, betrayed 
Marina Thompson. I think that she's going to get confronted for that. I think Mrs. Featherington is going to get in trouble for um, her bad behavior. And I think there's going to be a moment, um, more than one moment, when characters confront the abolitionist debate. And because they, because it's 1813 and it's between the abolition of the slave trade, but before, right, um, the right. Emancipation Act, there's, there's, room, there's room for that. I think the challenge is in order to do it well, and I'm almost glad they didn't take it up more fully in the first season, because I don't think they could have done it well. I think it would have um, been didactic. I think it would have been a clumsy speech I just don't think it would have gone so well. But I think that to do it well, it's going to take making characters that the audience has been primed to love and making them more complicated. Okay. Because not you know the aristocracy was not did not embrace abolition, right? It was really it was not. I mean, that, for obvious reasons, Anthony Bridgerton <laughs> would have different opinions. So I think there's all of this room for it. I don't think of it necessarily as an oversight. I think of it as understanding that there are things you do in season one and things you get to do in season three. And that instead of starting, I was just thinking of all of the, over the decades of historical period dramas set in Britain. And there's always like one black character and it's like the after school special about X. And the mm-hmm. black character comes in and they have all of this work to do, right? They have to be noble and sympathetic, but also dignified, but also abject. And they have to be the part way that our main character learns about some human lesson. I mean, they just do all of this narrative work and that doesn't happen here. So I think that there are all of these different ways that they could go. Yeah, I'll stop there. I have a, I, I, I think that the, um, one of the things you asked me in your email was about reception and was so sympathetic to the critiques and disappointments for, of some of the people who watched the show. I was most sympathetic to the call. There was a really um, passionate piece in Avidly saying, why do we keep focusing on England? And if we want to talk about mm. Black aristocracy, Haiti's right there, right? So why yeah. not that show? And I'm all for it. I don't think it would look like Bridgerton, right? Bridgerton is about young people falling in love trying to fall in love and trying to um, experience their bodies without getting caught or getting in trouble, <laughs> right? There are no, there's no, it's not about palace intrigue. There's no sort of maneuvering around the queen to gather her favor. There's no threat yeah. of overthrow. I mean, that's just, you know, it's not the Tudors was the series I was, you know, thinking of. It's not right. historical drama in that way. Um, and I think that one of the reasons I was a little more patient with it is because having read all eight Bridgerton novels, which is really, I don't think they're meant to be read back to back to back to back to back. Um, but having read all of them um, and wondering why Julia Quinn keeps keeping those. She wrote that series recently. This was not like this. She wrote it in the nineties and eighties. Mm. Thinking of an all white world. She's writing at a time when Beverly Jenkins is writing She's writing at a time when Courtney Milan is writing. It's a great point. You know, she's writing at a time where we see multicultural um, characters in romance and historical romance. Um, but having kept everyone white, I think the series had to really pay attention to that. Did I answer the question? I feel like I remember. You did, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, was, it was an unfairly spindly question for me, <laughs> to be very clear. So maybe we should, um, I mean, you start off your piece talking about Marina and... For people who haven't watched the show, as you mentioned, Marina is a distant cousin, as they say, of one of the families that are seemingly central to the plot of this series, the Featheringtons, which is a very silly name. And Marina shows up. She's a black woman. And we later, I don't think this is spoiling anything, but we later found out that she, we find out that she's pregnant. And there are a bunch of, you know, we, we won't spoil the rest Maybe the, the the pregnancy is enough, but why did you find her to be a particularly compelling character? So why I loved her, I loved her entrance, first of all. I um, It reminded me a little bit, and I think there were a lot of moments in the series this way, it reminded me a little bit of um, Mary, no, is it Crawford? In Mansfield Park, I'm going to forget the character's name because I'm distracted. But there's an entrance in the Patricia, Patricia Rosima adaptation of Mansfield Park. And um, the Crawfords arrive. And they're just objects of beauty. 
and they just show mm. up and they're just in their element. And that's how she arrives. I mean, the setup is there, right? Lady Featherington keeps going on and on about how she's going to be uncultured and she's life on the farm. And then she walks in and she's so beautiful without any of the adornment of the wealthier women. Um, I liked that she was knowing and wise, but still kind of innocent. Um, she knows what it means to miss your period. She's not as confused as the Featherington girls and um, the Bridgerton. Um, or Daphne, certainly, or Daphne. who seems to not know and not know parts of, of know. how it works. Someone was like, what's the, I was like, that's part of the genre. They're not supposed to know about sex. Like that's part of the thing, right? Um, but uh, but yeah, I think that she's knowing, but still um, hopeful. And um, the way that she has to move between confronting Lady Featherington and still being a young girl, being worldly, and being vulnerable. And I, the term mulatto is one we don't use anymore. It's mm-hmm. it's an offen- it's offensive and it's inappropriate. But when we did use the term, there was the trope of the tragic mulatto. That was the figure who, you know, is biracial and and her narrative was set. And the question, and the reason I like Marina's character so much, and I thought that Ruby Barker's performance was phenomenal. She had so, I think she had more to do than any of the other young women in the series. Um, And I was trying to figure out if she's tragic Mm. and mulatto with my quotation marks around it or if she's the tragic mulatto right um and i think that the fact that i didn't have an easy answer to a story that i not only knew what happened in the novel i know what happens in the historical fiction from the 19th century so i know it and to think oh this is not the same so i thought that was just real and that they didn't have to do it she is in i promise you she's in maybe three pages in the fifth novel she's the prologue I'm so much so that I missed it the first time. I thought, who's, like the names Philip sounded familiar to me. So I just think that, um, and the fact that she confronts all of these different forces in all of these spaces where the stakes aren't as high for the other women. So she's on the ballroom dance floor trying to escape a hard man. And she's in the parlor accepting all of the flowers from um, all the adulation from other men. She's in her room alone. I think the fact that we get to see a character of color, and I said this in the series, and I don't think people gave it enough credit, she's not there for the other characters. She's not there to be Daphne's wiser, hipper, more worldly friend to help Daphne figure things out. Um, In fact, part of Daphne's growth is understanding her responsibility to the marinas in her Mm -hmm. world, right? She has to learn these lessons. So I really, I just loved her, her story for those reasons. And I was, I mean, it doesn't happen in the novel that way. I was so sad. I mean, genuinely, you know, I've baked fun of the series and it's not that deep. I was genuinely sad that her relationship with Penelope took that turn because Penelope is so likable in the series. And I love that this was also a, um, a series where women were friends and even the rivalries were not vicious. They were practical you know, when um, Lady Cooper's daughter confronts Daphne, she says, you could have anybody. Why are you taking the prince? She's mm. angry, but she's also like, listen, we're all in this market. You know, we have to navigate this. And I really like their friendship that Penelope, you know, her older sisters were jealous because they saw her as competition. But Penelope thought she was beautiful and then was kind to her. Right. She was in that romance with her. So I just found her. Um, I just found her really compelling. Until um, she becomes a point of romantic competition for Penelope, right? So I think that that is, on the one hand, especially after reading your piece, I kept thinking about, this may sound a little bit perverse, but just follow me for a second, how much Marina reminded me of the she's a quite different character, but of the underappreciated sageness of a character like Mrs. Bennet from uh, Pride and Prejudice. Because Mrs. Bennet is oftentimes treated as, she's the fool, right? She's the, and Marina is not. I want to be very clear, everybody, that is clear. But what Mrs. Bennet represents is the sage wisdom of this is how this world works. So when Marina has to make really, and we're not going to spoil 
it, you know, the story too much. But when Marina has to make quite difficult decisions that in some ways, maybe in some readings could seem Machiavellian and manipulative, she is doing that because she intimately understands this is the reality of a woman's life and possibilities and opportunities in a marriage market that relies on virginity that relies on attaching yourself because even within i guess in bridgerton we do get the sense of like uh, a female bourgeois class like the seamstress the shop owner right those kind of things but marina recognizes that there are not a lot of options and unlike penelope and actually i think there's an interesting moment where they come into conflict where it's like penelope like you get but also don't get what this life is right This is what I think is interesting. So in that moment when Marina says to Penelope, you know, you just don't get it. In a, in less delicate hands, that would have been the white privilege critique. Mm -hmm. That's what that critique is. You don't get it, Penelope, because you don't have to get it. Right. However low you are on the economic ladder, you're still white and a virgin and you will make your way through this. You don't get it because you don't have to. And I thought it was sort of mirrored in some way, Penelope's, um, when she finally yells at Eloise, no offense to the actor, but I found that character as irritating as I find Mary, Mary Wollstonecraft, frankly. She, <laughs> says, she says to her, you're a Bridgerton. You don't have to think about these things. You know, like the world is big and all of these things are happening. Um, but that, yeah, I think you've hit on it. That's that, that moment between them. And I do think that Mrs. Bennett gets it um, for her daughters. And I, I'm, now that you bring it up, I kind of feel like maybe, uh, oh, one other thing to say about that. Um, um, maybe she's more like, um, who is Lizzie Bennett's best friend? Who oh, married? Charlotte. Yes. Isn't it said, Charlotte? Okay, hang Charlotte, on. Charlotte, I should know, but she marries. Um, yeah, she ma- she basically <laughs> jumps on the grenade for-, for She says, I want a home of my own. Like she understands that romance and idealism and love, all of that is for novels. <laughs> this is the real world. Um, and I think that, so there's a moment in um, a late Bridgerton novel where a young white heroine is being married off. It's the craziest plot of all eight. In fact, if I find out that Shonda Rhimes wrote it, I won't be surprised. It's that extreme. So one of the women, young women, is going to be married off to a man who has a secret you can imagine what that man, that young man's secret is. And his father is checking her teeth to see if she's going to breed healthy children because they're looking for a male heir. And trained as I am, when I read that, I thought, well, that's interesting. You usually see that kind of behavior when an ins- a, a captured person is being sold on the auction block, the checking of the teeth. That happens on the dance. I think it happens, I don't remember where, maybe it's the art gallery, but it happens to Marina and that man checks her teeth. and. A, it brings to mind the fact that there's a history of enslavement that has her in that moment. Um, But it also implies rape in a way that I think maybe people didn't pick up on. He's looking at her as a broodmare and he will reproduce for her. So the stakes are not just giving up some fantasy ideal. The stakes are signing up for rape um, with no moral or legal recourse in that society. So then her sort of pointing to Penelope and saying, you don't get it, seems not just selfish, like she just wants to marry Colin because A, B, and C, it's because she knows the other side of that story. And maybe, and you know, if if they will write me, I will tell them how to do this. Maybe it's because she knows her own, I could say this, she knows her mother's history. She knows her mother's history. So that's, yeah, that's all of those reasons. I just found her um, endlessly fascinating. When I had to go back and watch it a second time, I thought, ooh, this is not, some of this stuff made me cringe. But she held up to a second and even a third viewing, just paying attention to um, who she is in the story and how how Barker um, performs her. So one of the... um and we should wrap up soon. But um, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about, and Eric and I sort of talked about it after we first watched the show, was that something that struck me was that it seemed like there are many, many layers of fantasy in it, as you've pointed out and as we've talked about. But one of the ones that was most apparent to me, at least with the way that it ends, all right, again, spoiler alert, you know, obviously the main couple gets together. There's a lot of 
sort of surprisingly explicit sex, <laughs> I would say. Right? Like a surprise. Yes, like actually porny in moments. You just don't yeah. have the right camera angle. Um, so all of that happens. Um, but in the end, one of the central conflicts that the story hinges upon is whether to have a child or not. And it does end, again, listeners, if you don't want this show spoiled for you, fast forward. Yeah, definitely. Know the genre you're in. (laughs) A baby is born at the end. And one of the things that really struck me about it is that it's a very, it felt like a very female fantasy in that, okay, yes, you can have the man that you want, no matter how bad he is. And you can have sex, but it will all be to this greater purpose of one day reproducing and having a child. And for all of the various Mm. sort of progressive ways in which potentially the show had positioned itself in terms of um, other kinds of fantasy, this was sort of the, the kind of standard bearer lowest common denominator um, fantasy that we can get. I was a little disappointed by that decision, a little surprised, but I do think the racial element makes it a little bit more complicated. Anyway, what did you think? What did you think about that? What did you think about kind of how, how it ends up and, um, and all the sex along the way? Well, in the first place, I was maybe that looked awfully white. (laughs) That baby looked really pale. (laughs) (laughs) I did. I was peeking in the blanket, like, what's that baby going to look like? And then his father and his father's father and mother. Um, I think I think it's interesting that I always think about sort of the leash that that genre puts mm. on storytellers, mm. right? So if you think about how Austin ends Mansfield Park and she says, you know, I'll leave it to other hands. I think it's how she ends Mansfield Park. But her point is, listen, we've at, we're at the end of this novel and things have to happen. It's a courtship novel. It has to end in nuptials. So you can guarantee that, you know, not one minute too early or one minute too late, somebody's affections were trans to the object that they were supposed to be with. So she does all of that. And I think that that's exactly what happens here, that no matter how progressive the storyline, they're all on the leash that historical romance puts on its storytellers and you have to, they have to get married. And all of Julia Quinn's, and I think in most, I stopped reading these novels after a while because the sexual violence got to be too much once I started reading literary theory and Mm. feminist criticism in a new way. I thought this is is not a good like reader contract I want to participate in. So I've been surprised to come back to them a couple years ago and um, to see how they've handled that. Right. So there's not as much sexual violence. Julia Quinn got a lot of pushback for the sexual violence in the um, novel. The questions of consent are not blurry in the novel the way they are in the series between Daphne and Simon. But still at the end, everybody has to have a baby. They have to give birth. And I think the the thing that I'm more disappointed in is that it's just baked into Daphne's character. Like she doesn't grow into wanting that. Right. He just it just seems organic to her. And that's where I like Eloise a little bit for kind of wagging her finger you know, at her kind of hyper hetero sort of impulses that she never challenges or critiques. What makes her different in the novels is that she's more direct than other young women. And so men see her as a best friend as opposed to a, a desire, an object of their desire. Mm. And so that's kind of missing. I think there's casting that they had to do to make this you know, you got to speed a fantasy. And so you can't have a young woman who's going to eclipse the women who are going to watch the series. Um, So I just think it's tethered to those expectations. She and Simon have to get married. There has to be a misunderstanding. He's a rake. So he has to, you know, be cold and have some dark secret. And the unraveling of the secret also wraps up with the, their connection. I just think those things are there. And so I, I would have to wish the whole genre different to really want that and to want that end to be different. I can say that maybe Bridgerton in the novels doesn't require that level of fascination with motherhood from all Mm. of its heroines. I think maybe it like wrestles with that leash a little more later in the series. 
There also seems to be, and it's been a long time since I've read Austen's novels, so this may be a faulty memory, but there is such an emphasis on pleasure, physical, sexual pleasure in Bridgerton that I'm not familiar with from the genre because usually it does either those conventions that I'm not, obviously, you know, sexual relations are talked about as being, it'll usually be sublimated into something like, and he came up riding on a horse, you know, on the, on the hill or something like that. Or he, I fell down and he swooped in to kind of, to grab me. But it is like those things that we see, the scenes with like the, I want to be careful about what I say here, but just the gorgeous to look at, René Jean. But he also seems to explode that kind of category of the rake in the sense that, yes, he is alleged to be a rake early on, but then we have this weird and nonsensical story about why he doesn't want to have children. But he's also a rake who, unlike any character that I remember in Austin, of his own volition and good spirit, wants to put us, will sacrifice himself to just marry a woman who he feels that he's made feel sad, I guess, is what happens with Daphne. Well, I think we have to remember these are not Austin. Like, they're not, they're they're like, we want to because, you know, it looks like we would imagine Austin. Right, Um, right. Yeah, that is very much in the tradition, however, of romance, historical romance. Okay, okay. So picked up, you know, Lisa Claypest, or Julie Garwood, or they're all, the only reason those men ever get married is because they've besmirched some woman's honor. And so they have to step up to do the right thing or they'll get killed or get the shit beat out of them. Like that, that's just part of, they never want to get married ever. They never, they're always avowed bachelors and they meet the woman they're going to end up marrying. And suddenly they they don't want to have, there's a crude way to say it, but they don't want to have sex with other women. Okay. Okay. So sometimes we meet them in the middle of, post-coital rakish behavior <laughs> and then they set eyes on the heroine and then suddenly their libido is like she's the one even though they don't you know want to get married sometimes they act and often they accidentally compromise her virtue so the accident of the compromise is how the men who don't want to get married end up married it is the most hilarious of plot expectations that you have to get these men to the I was going to say to the throne. To the altar. To the altar through an accident because they all seem to know not to mess with women like Daphne. Okay. Okay. Right. Right. So the modiste and the opera singer, right, Sienna, those are the women they, they have sex with. They tend not to compromise because they know they have to get married and they don't want to get married. And yet- Are you saying, is it a class thing? Is that what ultimately nobody, is what nobody makes the rake? the opera singer to be modest. They're not expected to be. Cheap. I see. I see. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. But the women, because they have to produce an heir, that's the other point in order to keep, right? In order to keep the sort of the line of the, the inheritance line, they have to produce an heir. So the women have to be chaste, um, C-H-A-S-T-E. Mm-hmm. And the men don't. Got it. So uh, yes, yeah, so what I would, what I did, what I did think was absolutely new um, and very rare was to have a young woman masturbating. That's and right. I've forgotten about that. Yeah. And to have him explain that to her, which is not in the novel, and it's very, it's so rare when you read these novels that they're like, wait, did that just happen? It's just, it's not, a, it's just not something. So women are only introduced to their bodies through marriage and on their wedding night and um in all of the bridgerton novels and the novels that are like it um there's just because these are written for women the fantasy is that all of the men are so concerned about their pleasure that it's important that their pleasure is more important and they have complete control and self-control and the women you know have their pleasure so first and so that is interesting that daphne discovers her own body on her own and then turns great musician which i thought was actually kind of like she finishes that piece and her fingers are flying over the keyboard yeah Yeah. actually i wondered i mean this seems not likely but um if that was a reference to eve sedgwick and jane austen and the and the masturbating girl 
I would it's, let's just say it. Let's just agree. Yeah, let's <laughs> agree that 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 um that's happened. Yeah, sure. Why not? Sure. Make it so yeah. for sure. Yeah, exactly. No, I think that's totally I think if they're reading Saeed, maybe they're reading Sedgwick too. So. <laughs> we don't know what goes on in that writer's room. We don't know. No, I know. We yeah. weren't there. Well, thank you so much, Patricia, for joining us for this conversation about um, Bridgerton. And thank you so much for writing that piece and the other review of books. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. It's good to decompress about it. I haven't talked to very many people, so this is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking to Patricia A. Matthew. She's an associate professor of English at Montclair State University, where she teaches courses on British Romanticism and the history of the novel. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. That will help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the Law Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. The executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broughton. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vlotton. The publisher and editor-in-chief of the LA Review of Books is Tom Lutz.